than one chapter uh, a couple of weeks. And we're going to study 1 Samuel. We're going to be in for chapter 20. I'm going I'm to do something here at the beginning, though, that we haven't been together for three months. And, and this is something that I've done before with you a long, long time ago. taught a Christianity 101 class. That was, that was several years ago. I'm not going to go through that. I, but I did present this little bit of material to you then, and we've referred to it over the years. I, <clears throat> there's this book called uh, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible, which is really a Really a good book by Max Anders is his name. And it is a, it's really a pretty basic book, but I found it to be, I've recommended it to people over the years because I found it to be a really good, you know, primer. This just to really helps you understand the overall scope of scripture, which I think is pretty important to understanding any part of scripture to understand the, this overall arc, as, as he calls it, the arc of Bible history. And so what I want to do for the, we're not going to spend more than, you know, five, six minutes on this, but it's to go through what he calls the arc of Bible history at the beginning of that book. And the reason I'm doing this is just to once again emphasize what God is doing in the world and where this fits into that, which is something we need to do with any part of Scripture. If you, if you take a text and you don't, you don't think about where it fits into the Bible, then it, you're much more likely to take it out of context, make it say something that it didn't actually say that the author didn't mean, that God didn't mean. And so he has this ark, and it, it's actually, I've seen it pictured different ways. That it seems like I remember it was like 12, like a clock, you know, with 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, so all the way around. And, and then there are other ways of depicting this. But there are 12 steps on it. And what it does is it just takes you through this story. And if you look at the book, it'll, it'll give the name of the, the chapter, It'll give you the primary character, and then it'll give you a brief summation of what happens. And, and I like this because it helps us to see what God has been doing. And so I do it here. We're studying 1 Samuel, and I want to show you where that fits in. Some of this will be uh, pretty much basic for you, but, but it'll be new to some of you, too. That's why I do it. So the arc of Bible history. Obviously, when you start, when you open the Bible, you've got, um, you've got creation told, Genesis 1 and 2 are told there at the very beginning. And, and this, and, and with uh, Max Sanders, the creation stands for this entire opening scene. The, the creation, the, the fall, what happens during the first part of the Bible. And that includes, of course, the first several chapters of the Bible. Um, you've got Genesis, the creation is Genesis 1 through 10. All right, so you've got, you got creation that's good, but then the whole story is told with, with the fall with a flood, all that kind of fits together. Everything is good and then bad and then gets worse with the flood and God purges the world. So you got Genesis 1 through 10 that tell the story of creation and the fall. Then you've got Genesis 12 where God calls the patriarch, Abraham. And so you've got that patriarchal era. God calls Abraham and he makes a promise to him. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna bless the world through you. I am going to make, give you a great land. I am going to give you a great nation, and I am going to bless the world through you. These three promises that he makes to Abraham, which in, in a lot of ways frame the rest of the Bible story. Those first two, a land promise and the nation promise, are going to fill the Old Testament. And then that last one, God's blessing the world through Abraham, is going to take us all the way to Jesus Christ. But you got the creation, you got creation, then you got patriarch, that's Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob. Then you got the story of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph in the last 13, 14 chapters of Genesis down in Egypt, prison, 
you know, interpreting the dreams. And, and, and through Joseph, the family all end up down in Egypt. The entire family ends up down in Egypt. And that leads you to the next portion. I'm going to put all these up there in just a second so you can see them together. But that leads you to Exodus. So they end up down in Egypt. They're slaves there at the, at the beginning of the book of Exodus. They're, they've become slaves. Pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph and he oppresses the people of Israel. And so God sends Moses and Moses helps them to Exodus, to depart, to leave the land of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and he takes them to the land of Canaan and so on. We're skipping over a lot, but this I think helps you to <clears throat> helps you just to sort of in your mind to, to trace this Bible story. So you've got creation, God calls Abraham the patriarch, and they end up down in Egypt, so God wants to bring them out of Egypt. So you've got the Exodus, God gives them the law, and they wander for 40 years because of their disobedience, but finally they get to the cusp of the land of Canaan that God had promised Abraham. Remember the land promise? I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land. So they get to the land. What do you have to do when you get to the land? Well, they've got to conquer the land. And so Joshua leads the people in, and they conquer the land. Well, once they get the land conquered, they need to set up some sort of a government, right? What's the first kind of government? It's the next book after Joshua. It is called uh, the book of Judges. And it's called Judges because you have a series of a number of judges who they're sort of like kings, but not really. They are these deliverers, these they rise up and, and help conquer some opposition they've got. So you get the period of judges. It lasts for about 400 years. And then after the period of judges, the people cry out for a king. We don't want to be like, we, we don't want to be like this. We want to be like everybody else. And so they cry out for a king. God gives, gives them a king. I'm going to come back to that in a second because that's where, that's where we are. We, we kind of traverse these two epochs with this class of 1 Samuel. And so it helps to know where this progression is So they set up kings, uh, Saul and David and Solomon, the big portion of the Old Testament is this period, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And then you have the story retold in 1st and 2nd Chronicles, but Saul, David, Solomon. What happens, you guys know, what happens at the end of Solomon's reign and when his son Rehoboam takes over? You got a united kingdom followed by, yeah, divided kingdom because of some really some tax Solomon in order to pay for all of his building projects. He really taxed the people heavily and they wanted some relief from that. Rehoboam said, you think that was bad? You just wait till you see what I'm going to be like as your king. So they divide. Ten tribes go to the north. They're called Israel. Two tribes go to the south. They're called, <clears throat> after their more, more prominent tribe, they're called Judah. So you got Israel and Judah. So that goes on. You got this kingdom you know, if we were breaking this up more so, we would say United Kingdom for 120 years and then a divided kingdom, and you can go into more detail with that. But that's, that's how the story goes. Now, were they faithful or unfaithful for the most part during the time of the kings? Mostly unfaithful, weren't they? Disobedient. Deuteronomy said, if you are obedient, I will bless you. If you're disobedient, I will send you into exile. I will bring up a nation, and that nation will conquer you and will take you away into exile. And so you see that happening first with Israel in the north. Assyria comes and takes them away, and they actually never come back as a, as a kingdom again, as, a, as an independent nation. <clears throat> and then in the south, they exist for about 135 years later, but then finally God raises up Babylon and takes them away into exile. 
They are in exile for about 70 years. But God had said through Jeremiah and others, once I take you into exile, if you will humble yourself, if you will repent, then I will I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back from captivity after you're there for 70 years. And so that's followed by the return. The return is told about by you know, Ezekiel, and then some of the prophets are during this time, Malachi and Zedekiah. And some of the prophets in the Old Testament are, are preachers during this time, Habakkuk and others. So they come back, return, and then that's the end of the Old Testament. You've got this period of silence, about 400 years from, from Malachi, which is about 400 B.C., so you've got 400-year period of silence. And then the last three, that's the first nine, so you've got eight in the Old Testament, one in between, and then you've got three for the New Testament, and those are... First, you've got the four Gospels, the four stories of the life of Jesus. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell about the life of Jesus. Jesus, when he died, his blood was shed so that he might purchase the church. Gospels, and then the church. And then at the end of the book of, well, at the end of Matthew, Jesus gives this great commission, but you have the church being established in the book of Acts. But the rest of the New Testament is about taking that message to the whole world. And so you have missions which has this focus on the end where Jesus is going to come back. It's got this very much of a forward focus, this, this, uh, this looking ahead toward when Jesus is going to come back and everything is going to find its fulfillment in him. Those are the 12. So just wanted to mention those briefly. So you, if you're new to the class or new to this church or maybe you haven't done this in a while to, to understand where all this comes from. So just briefly, once again, you know, you got creation, Genesis 1 through 10, creation, fall, flood. You've got the patriarch. That's the rest of the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons, including Judah and Joseph, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and so on. They end up down in Egypt, so God brings them back out of the land of Egypt and leads them to the land of Canaan. That's the exodus, crossing the Red Sea, giving them the law, all that in the land. They wander the wilderness. And so they get to the land, they've got to conquer the land, so that's the book of Joshua with the conquest of the land. So they take the land, they need to set up some, some form of government, and so they do so, and you call it the period of the judges, where you have judges rising up, and they become displeased with that, and we want a king like everybody else. And so you've got the period of the kingdom, united, and then it's divided, and then you've got rebellion, which leads to exile for 70 years in Babylon, but then they repented and said, you know, we will be obedient to you. We won't worship these idols anymore. So God brought them back, the return, and that's the end of the Old Testament, followed by a period of silence leading to Jesus, the Gospels, which he establishes the church and sends us on mission to the whole world. And that's the story of the Bible. Now, where are we? 1 Samuel is Judges and king, Kingdom. And that, that's, that's where it is. And we, we studied this back before the summer. And it starts out in the period of the judges. The last judge, now some of the judges you remember from the book of Judges, I mean, we didn't study them in this class, but uh, I guess the most famous one is Samson. But you've also got you know, Gideon, you've got uh, Ehud, Deborah, a bunch of them. Right? The last one is Samuel. During Samuel's role as judge. The people say we want to be like all the other kings. So the, so the first part of the book of 1 Samuel, it's really getting us to the end of the judges. It's dark. It's spiritually bankrupt. The people are, 
just lethargic spiritually, apathetic, don't, you know, I don't care. There's, I mean, you, you remember when we talked about this a few months ago, you've got the, the, the priest, the high priest is Eli and his, his sons are stealing sacrifice. The people bring sacrifices to the tabernacle to offer them to God and they're kind of stealing them, taking the best parts. There are these, I don't know, prostitutes or these, you know, these temple prostitutes or something that the priests, the sons of Eli are sleeping with these, these, these women. They're committing acts of immorality around the tabernacle. It's just ugly. I mean, it's bad. But in the middle of all that, you've got this godly woman whose name is Hannah who really, really wants to have a son. And um, she asked God to give her a son. That son is Samuel. Samuel is born and he grows up and he becomes this prophet and a judge and he's, he's uh, seeking to turn the people back toward God. But during that time, the people get fed up with this. They get fed up with you know, Eli and the corrupt priesthood. They're fed up with not really having any success and they say, we want a king like everybody else. And so God says, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And they got exactly the kind of king they wanted. They got a king who looked good, he was physically imposing. He looked good on a horse. He looked like he could lead an army. He was confident. He, uh, you know, he, he just looked like a king. He looked like all the nations around about him. That, this is the kind of king they had. And his name was Saul. And so the first part of the book of Samuel is that transition from the time of the judges into the time of kingdom. And you've got Samuel ordaining Saul to be the first king. Well, what kind of king was Saul? Saul was a king like the other nations. He didn't care about God. He was spiritually shallow. He was, it is, he, he, he had some military ability. He actually led them in some pretty good battles, but he was spiritually bankrupt. And so God says to Saul, because of your rebellion, because of your disobedience, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and I'm going to give them to a neighbor who's better than you. And he sent Samuel to the house of Jesse. And Jesse had a young son whose name was David, a shepherd. He brought him in and Samuel anointed him to be the next king. So that's the time where we are right now. Um, we're in chapter 20. And what's happening here is that David has already killed Goliath. David is taken a prominent role in Saul's army. He is leading them in conquest over the Philistines, and God is really, really delivering David. He's, he's helping him to be successful. I mean, David is doing well. But what that engenders with Saul is jealousy and anger and bitterness. And so it's during this time where Saul decides that David does not need to live. I mean, he knows. He knows what Samuel told him. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. This is what Samuel told Saul. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. I'm going to give him to a, a neighbor of yours who's better than you. You think Saul didn't figure out who that was? No, he, he knew. He knew exactly who it was. And so what he's doing is he wants to try to keep that from happening by killing David. Okay. We talked about this before the summer, but what you have is uh, David has developed a really good relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. They are good friends. They're close. David has married Saul's daughter, Michael, who actually saved his life in the last study we had before the summer because Saul was going to kill David, and David, uh, Michael warned him, said, you need to get out of the house tonight uh, or else you're going to die. 
And so Michael has protected him a little bit. That's chapter 19. And then we come to chapter 20. I mean, things are going to get worse for David from now on. But th- things are, David, David doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Saul wants him dead. And so in this chapter, you've got this really emotional, uh, I don't know, this is a neat chapter. You've got something happening between David and Jonathan here that is, it reflects what God is doing for us, and it's a, it's a pretty neat chapter. So that's where we are, and we are going to uh, move pretty quickly through this. We're going to cover this chapter tonight. What I want us to do, I'm going to read this, but I'm going to read a paragraph of this, and then we'll talk about it instead of reading all 42, I think it's 42 verses at the beginning. We're going to break it up a little bit. All right, so just I'm going to read the first 11 verses. You can follow along with me or just listen and And then, I think you'll like this chapter if you haven't read it lately. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do it for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem this day. Uh, Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it'll be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. All right, stop there for a second. We'll we'll read on in just a minute. But, you know, it's interesting here, just the personal kind of the dynamics, the relationship dynamics of David and Jonathan. You, You know this, I'm sure, but you know how it worked in the ancient world with kingdoms, right? Who's going to be the next king? I mean, you know David is, but... Naturally speaking, who, who's got the right to the throne? It's John, Jonathan does. And you'll see down below, that's what Saul's worried about. And he, this is a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal to, to Saul, to any king, for it to be passed on. You want to establish this legacy and for your, your family to reign for generations. You know? So he's wanting Jonathan to be the king, and he sees that this isn't going to happen. But, but this chapter is, is really an incredible testimony to the, to the character of Jonathan in particular, because Jonathan is the next king, and, and, and it's in Jonathan's best interest from a selfish perspective for, for, for David to die. I mean, all Jonathan had to do here, I mean, he could have made this happen. All he had to do is to get out of the way. He could trick David. He could kill David. He could, uh, you know, he could lie. He could orchestrate this where Saul gets exactly what Saul wants, and that is for David's head to be on a platter, as it were. That would be what Saul wants. I mean, what, what Saul wanted, and it would be what Jonathan, from a selfish perspective, wanted. And I think David is trying to fill him out here. 
I really do. I think he's trying to figure out, is John, can I trust him? I mean, they're close. And I think David thinks he can trust Jonathan. But I don't know if he's absolutely certain that he can. Because he comes to Jonathan basically here and he says, look, what, what have I done? Why does your dad want to kill me? And, you know, you, you may remember or may not, you know, chapter 19, that's, that's the whole story with Michael and David sending, or uh, Saul sending people to David's house to kill him. And so I don't know if Jonathan didn't understand what was going on. I don't know if he, I think probably what David said about Saul and Jonathan is true. And that is, David basically said, Jonathan, your dad knows we're friends. And so your dad is not going to tell you that he's about to kill me because he knows that we're close. He knows that you and I are, you know, pretty tight. <laughs> and he's not going to let you know what's going on. Because Jonathan basically says here at the beginning of this, my, dad's, my, my father's not going to kill you. What are you talking about? Where'd you get this from? He wouldn't do something like that without letting me know. And David says, yeah, he would. He very well would do it without you knowing because he knows that you and I are close. And so to, to Jonathan's credit, he says, okay, what do, you, what do you want to do? What's your plan? And David comes up with a plan. It's a pretty basic plan. The first day of the new moon, there would be a feast and it, David would be expected to be there. He was in the, he was close to Saul. It seems kind of weird though after you know, Saul's already tried to kill David, it doesn't, it's not very surprising that David wouldn't show up for dinner. But on the first day, he would be expected to be there. And so, you know, he sets this up by, by saying that I'm not going to show up and we're going to see how your father reacts. And if he's okay with it, then we'll take that as a sign that he's calmed down. Everything's going to be okay, at least for now. But if he's angry, then we'll know. Then we'll know. And so that's the plan. And, and they basically, well, in the next, next section, they're going to come up with a plan how that news is going to get to David. All right, I want to quickly get through the historical part of this so we can reflect on it a little bit. Verse 12, Jonathan said to David, this is, this is our plan. This is how you're going to let me know. The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded at my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. All right, I'm going to come back to this, this notion of covenant here in a minute, if we have time. But Jonathan says, you know, uh, basically... I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm going to let you know. But Jonathan also says, let's make a covenant. Because it's customary for the kingdom to pass to the son, to the, to, to the eldest son. But if the kingdom passed outside of the family or even to another son, you probably know what then is the custom for the new king to do would be to eliminate all the potential rivals. You see this happening again and again and again, even in Israel's history, that um, when a king takes over, kills all of his brothers, 
He kills any would-be usurpers. That's just what you do. In that world, that's what you do. So Jonathan knows that, David, when you become king, what your people are going to tell you to do is to do what every other king does, and that is kill me and kill my whole family and kill all my kids, kill everybody. You're making a covenant with me not to do that. And uh, David's going to honor that, by the way. David makes the covenant, and he keeps it. In fact, Jonathan's, Jonathan, as you, you may know already, Jonathan dies uh, when Saul dies, but when David takes over, he, he finds Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and he takes care of him. He provides for him. normal thing to do in that case would be to kill Mephibosheth and any of the sons Jonathan had, but David takes care of him because this covenant that was made in this chapter, David honors this because he knows that when you make a covenant, especially when you make a covenant uh, against the backdrop of God's loving kindness, which we'll talk about that in a second, you keep that covenant. This is very important. Okay, verse, verse 18. So here's the, here's the plan, Jonathan says. Tomorrow's the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. This is referring to something that already happened. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the young man, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. By the way, just pause there for a second. On a, this was a holy feast, and so you could not come to the feast if you were ceremonially unclean. If you, if you touched it, something that had touched a dead body, if you touched certain kinds of animals, um, certain relations with your wife, uh, various sorts of things could make you ceremonially unclean, all right? And you couldn't come to the table. So Saul thinks, oh, he's unclean. Uh, verse 27, but on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. So you can come to it on the second day if you're ceremonially unclean. So if you don't show up that day, you don't have the unclean excuse because anybody can be there. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. That's a feasible story. It's a lie, but it's feasible. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul 
hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. All right. I mean, this is a, you know, it's just a neat story. It's a sad story. Tragic in a lot of ways. But, but this is interesting how this is playing out. Uh, Saul makes, you know, the first day is not there. Well, lots of people miss on the first day because they've got some reason to be ceremonially unclean. But second day, there's no excuse for this. David ought to be here. Why is he not here? And, and Jonathan tells us pre-rehearsed story, this lie about what could have happened. And um, Saul knows. Saul knows. That's not what's going on. It's interesting. He basically says to Jonathan, well, he calls him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. And then he says, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? So he, he talks about his mother in two ways here. First of all, he calls her a perverse, rebellious woman. And then he says, you don't need to bring shame to your mother. It's interesting though. It's kind of what he's just done. He says, you don't need to do. He's He's talked about Jonathan's mother in a negative way, and then he says, you don't need to bring shame on her nakedness, which is basically the woman who, the nakedness idea would be her bringing you into this world. Don't bring shame to this woman who birthed you, you know? Saul doesn't care about that. So, so he, he brings, you know, he insults him. He tries to shame him. And then he appeals to his greed or his... His rebellion, I mean, not his rebellion, his um, uh, ambition, that's the word, ambition. Don't you know, Jonathan, that the kingdom is yours? Help me kill him. And it'll be yours, man. But if you keep acting like this, you're not going to have anything. You're going to be dead. Because you know what's going to happen if he gets the kingdom. He's going to kill you. I mean, you're going to be dead. We need to kill him. It's interesting, Jonathan's response, verse 32, is why? Why should he be put to death? The, the responsibility of the king was to enforce the Torah, the law. That was his job. And the law did give him the right to put people to death in certain situations. So Jonathan here, this is, a, 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 I guess, a not-so-subtle way to say to his father, what does, the, what does the Word of God say, Father? What has he done? You're the enforcer of the law. What has he done? What command has he broken? What capital crime has he committed? I mean, it's Jonathan's way of saying, you're not doing what God put you here to do. What has he done? Saul doesn't care. At this point, Saul doesn't care. There were times where Saul at least gave lip service to the law, but he's even lost that kind of devotion to the law. He doesn't even care anymore at all. Certainly not on the inside, and he doesn't even on the outside either. And Jonathan recognizes what this signifies in verse um, 34. He's angry, and he's grieved because of his father's actions. Last part of the chapter Verse 35, in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? 
And Jonathan called after the boy, and these words are spoken really to David. Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy, no doubt confused, gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose up from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. They're going to meet one more time after this. This is the next to the last meeting Jonathan and David will ever have before Jonathan dies as a result of, um, you know, a battle that takes place here in a few chapters. So it's, I mean, the... The information, this, you know, that we had this set up, of course, you understand about the arrows. And uh, the clue would be, you know, go, go, go farther, go farther. Don't, don't stay here. And that would be David's cue. Um, <clears throat> and we're, we're almost out of time, but this is just, this is just a good story. I mean, uh, the, way the, the way the narrator is framing the story, it, it draws you in, it makes you feel for the characters here, the historical characters, David and Jonathan and Saul. It, um, but there, there are hints here that there's something bigger going on. And, and I think some of the language here we have talked about in the past, this notion in the Old Testament. One of the most important concepts in the Old Testament is this, is this Hebrew word that's spelled or transliterated C-H-E-S-E-D. You say that first part with a hard k sound. Like Hebrew professors say, if you're not spitting, if you're not spitting when you say the k sound, you're not saying it right. So if you say k and some spit comes out, then you're saying it hard enough. It's a really hard consonant. But the way it's translated in the Old Testament is a bunch of different ways. But it is all over the place. This is the word that more than any other that describes how God chose to reveal himself to us. It's translated often loving kindness. It's translated mercy. Uh, sometimes it's just love or some com combination of love, kindness, and mercy. Those are the, the three ideas that are embedded in this Hebrew word. Back in Exodus 33, when uh, Moses was discouraged. He had been leading these rebellious people out of captivity and they, had, they were doing all sorts of stuff. He was frustrated and he says, Lord, I need to know that you're here. I need to know that you've got this because uh, I can't handle it anymore. He says, please show me your glory. And this is that story in Exodus 33 and on into Exodus 34 where God says, you can't, I can't do that. You can't, you can't see me and live. But he says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you up. And then I'm going to, my glory is going to pass by. And then as I'm passing by, I'll uncover and you can see, uh, I always have in my mind the King James translation there, the, the hinder parts. <laughs> uh, but, but basically, you, you can see the, the leftover part of my glory. You can't tolerate seeing me. Anyway, he says, when I pass by you, I am going to declare to you my, na my name. And... Uh, and when he does this, he says, you know, I am, he passes by Moses and he says, I am the Lord. And he says, I 
who extend to my people loving kindness. This word figures prominently in the Old Testament, in the New Testament as well, with, with grace, mercy, love, and kindness, those notions that are embedded in the New Testament as well. But I didn't point it out in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, but the word itself is used in a couple of places. And I think it's interesting that, well, let me give you, I think verse 8. Verse 8 says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. See, the notion of God's loving kindness is embedded in God's extending covenant making covenant with his people. So God makes a covenant with his people and God is a God who keeps covenant. Always he keeps covenant. God does not break covenant with his people. That idea of covenant is all over the Old Testament because Israel broke covenant. God never did. Because God is loving and he is kind and he is merciful and God is faithful. That's another word that's in that idea. God is faithful to the covenant. And I think this notion of covenant is a backdrop for a lot of what you read in the Old Testament and on into the New Testament. And here in chapter 20, we have Jonathan and David making this covenant between two people that reflects the same qualities that God has in his extending to us his covenant. Um, the... I guess, other than the historical part of this, which is just tra ta taking us from, you know, David to the kingdom, which is going to have all sorts of messianic implications. But this idea of covenant here is very important to David and, jo and Jonathan because they knew God and they knew the covenant. They knew the law. And they knew that because God is a faithful, loving, kind, merciful because God always keeps covenant. That's what his people are to be like. And David and Jonathan make a covenant here that it would have been in their best interest from a selfish perspective for both of them to have broken it. It would have been easy for Jonathan to have broken it when he sat at the dinner table with his father the next day because that was a ton of pressure for him to be under. Selfishly break covenant and I get the kingdom. It would have been easy for David later, we'll get to this, well, actually, that may be in Second Samuel, but um, it would have been easy later for David to break covenant as well because everybody would have been telling him, you've got to eliminate the line. You've got to eliminate the Saul line. You've got to do that. But David kept covenant. Why? Because David and Jonathan both knew a covenant-keeping God. And so what God extends to us we extend to others. We're looking for a takeaway, a take-home lesson from this. It is God extends to us his grace, mercy, kindness, and faithfulness, and we reflect that to the world. We're covenant-keeping people. We extend covenant. We're faithful and honorable and ethical, and we act as best we can consistently with the God whose name we wear. We'll move on next Wednesday night, Lord willing, in 1 Samuel 21. I urge you to read ahead. It, it, it certainly would help you as we go through this class for you to have read some of this. So read the next couple of chapters, and we'll study this again next week. Thanks so much for your good attention. I hope you have a good night. Thanks.